0: Friends, please pray with me. Um, Father in heaven, thank you so, so much for the privilege of being able to gather. Thanks for freedom to have the scriptures in our own language and the freedom to meet and read them without fear. Lord, we pray for the deep work of your spirit in our hearts that we might listen as you speak. Father, open us up, show us the truth about who you are And help us to understand ourselves, that we might know how to serve you. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I understand that you've been invited today by someone somewhere uh, to come and think a little bit about vocational Christian ministry. Uh, For some of you, that may have been a very willing experience, and maybe some of you, it's a slightly less willing experience. That is, you weren't sure that it was what you should be doing, but someone else has kind of twisted your arm and said, you should be here. I don't know kind of what state you're in. Uh, But I imagine that as you come to something like this, your head is full of questions. There are things that you want to know the answers to. What does it look like? What will ministry mean? What might it mean for me? What would I need to change? Is it scary? Can I do it? Is it... But what I want to do before you engage in those questions, and I really do hope you engage in lots of those questions today, is to stop and to suggest to you that there are some questions that God probably has of you uh, before you ask questions of God and of others when it comes to thinking about the ministry and about the gospel going forward. And so what I really want to do is reflect a little bit with you first on Philippians chapter 2 about the nature of Jesus and the gospel. And then think a little bit in the light of 1 Timothy 3 about what it is that God calls on his people to be like if they're going to be servants of others with the truth of that gospel. So flip open Philippians chapter 2 with me, and I want to pick it up for you with you at the end of that little section, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly <laughs> exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There is a truth about reality that it seems to me, once you have grasped it, overshadows every other truth. And it is this, the world in which you live has a destination. It has a goal. It is a place that it is all moving towards. We are not living in a place which is an endless cycle of life and death. We are not living in a space where our genes are on some selfish journey of self-fulfillment. We live in a creation that has a goal, a creation that is going somewhere, and that means something for every person on the planet. There is going to come a moment in time when every single knee is going to bow before Jesus Christ and declare that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because God has set upon his son, Jesus, a name that is above every name. Now, just think about that for a moment. His name is actually greater than all of the other names of history. It's greater than Genghis Khan, greater than Muhammad, greater than Buddha, greater than Queen Elizabeth or Queen Victoria, greater than Washington or Roosevelt, greater than Elvis, greater than the Beatles greater than Bradman or Pele or Plato or Aristotle, (laughs) greater than Galileo or Einstein or Newton, a name greater, in fact, than all of the great names of history, if you could roll them all together into one human being, Jesus would be greater still than any of those. The one person in all of the history of the world to whom is due praise and honour and glory. And there is coming a moment when every knee will bow to him, and not just the knees of this earth. We're told the the things that are in heaven, the things that are under the earth, every creature, the spiritual beings, the demons and the angels, every knee, willingly or unwillingly, is going to stand at a moment at the end of history and come face to face with Christ and declare his perfection and his wonder. And his beauty and his holiness and cry out to the whole universe of the rich depths of his glorious grace and I want to ask you for a moment if that is true what does that do to the purpose of your life what's the purpose of your family's life of your friends lives What's the purpose of the lives of the people that you just walked past on the way here this morning? Where is the whole of creation heading? It's heading to a moment when it will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of all. Now just take that seriously for a moment. Just stop and suck on it and think about it for a minute. You live in a world where everything that you do and everything that you watch wants to say, I want to be the substitute for God. Man, my family uh, love reality television for some reason or another, uh, and I keep watching these shows which seem to be promising me a replacement for God. So I've been watching The Voice with some of my kids. You could fulfil your dream. You could bring happiness and a change in the lives of people. You could transform the world in which you live by following your dream of music and the gift of song that's been given you. And you flick over the channel to MasterChef and they're telling you exactly the same thing, but this time it's food. Food can relieve you of your life of boredom and you can make things that will make people happy and gather people together around your table and you'll bring world peace and happiness to all things. Or did any of you, like you listened to the and watched the World Cup recently? What's the rhetoric around the World Cup? It is that sport can bring all the nations of the world together and find security and happiness and joy. Everywhere we look, people are looking to anything but Jesus to provide peace and security and health and life and hope. What does Romans 1 say is the essence of sin? It is to worship the creation rather than the creator. And the Jesus through whom all of the creation came into being and for whom it all exists is shuffled off into a corner of people's lives that they ignore and look everywhere apart from him. Uh, If you're a gamer, you will know that the biggest thing in the computer game world at the moment is a game called Fortnite. Uh, Up until April this year, it made 300 million American dollars. That is a lot for a game that's free to play. You don't actually get charged any money to download it and install it on your computer and start to play. The only thing that you pay for in Fortnite is cosmetic. So you spend money to design your character and make them look different to everything else. You spend money in order to give them some funky dance moves that are different to the basic dance moves that you perform when you kill someone. Uh, $300 million US has been spent by people changing the cosmetic outlook of their character so that they can perform a funkier dance When they kill someone in a virtual world. (coughs) And people spend hours and weeks and months of their life in this space as if this is the meaning of life. And actually, that's terrifying, isn't it? And tragic and awful. Our world worships at the feet of leisure. And we want to find a hobby that's going to provide meaning. And all the world, everybody's ignoring the fact is that we are in a space that has a goal. The Jesus who made this world will one day be bowed down to by every single person. Here is the meaning of life. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so my first question, which I want to suggest, is God's question for you as you think about this ministry thing. Does God's vision about the purpose and place of the future of the world fill your mind? Do you pray for God to give you that that picture of the last day and to remember who this Jesus is and what is owed to him and why it's so important that the world needs to hear about him? As you unpack the passage, though, you will notice that There is a reason that this Jesus has been appointed with the name above every name, to whom every knee should bow. You see it there, beginning of verse 9, Therefore, there is a purpose God has for the universe, but God is bringing that about in Christ because of something that Christ has done. So what is it? Verses 6 to 8. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why is Jesus worthy of glory and honour? Why should his name be praised by every tongue in the created world? Because he became a servant and he obeyed God unto death. If the last part of the passage is a vision of the future, these verses are a vision of the Jesus who has made that future a reality. And it actually is a picture that I don't think we can even begin to wrap our minds around. Jesus Christ, in very nature God, just imagine for yourself for a moment that you actually had all of the power of God, that you could do anything you wanted. (laughs) that you could be anyone, that you could control everything, that you could shape the future of the world, what would you do with your godness? Just roll that around in your mind for a moment. What would you do if you could do anything? You see, Jesus, in all of his godness, chose to be born in a manger. And he chose to be chased off to Egypt by King Herod when he was a toddler. He chose to enter into a world that he knew was fundamentally in the darkness and at odds with his father. He chose to become like you and me and to live in a place that's as miserable and messed up as our creation is and for whom the end for everyone is actually death. And so he came to be ridiculed and to be rejected and to be scoffed at and to be sidelined. He came into a world knowing that people would so hate him That they would try him and beat him and place thorns on his head and cause him to carry the beam of his cross through the streets of Jerusalem as he walked to the place that he would die. That's what Jesus did with his godness. And it's not so much what he did with his godness, but I want to suggest to you in some ways it actually shows you the very nature of godness, if I can put it like that. What is God like in himself? And the answer is that he's fundamentally other person-centred. Father, Son, and Spirit fundamentally live in relationship for and with each other, and they have lived in relationship to our world in a way that rather than stand on their rights, they actually have acted with grace and kindness and in Jesus in particular with deep humility. And it's beautiful, isn't it? Um, I came across this story recently, um, which is just a lovely little image, I think, of humility. Um, There's a picture about to appear on the screen. You probably won't know who this is. This is a man called Booker T. Washington. Uh, He's a very famous, uh, although not in our circles, Uh, African-American. He was born into slavery at the end of the 19th century but grew up to be an African-American leader uh, in the early 20th century. Um, One of the things that he did was he formed uh, an educational college for young people of color uh, called the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. (laughs) It was one of the first of its kind in the world Uh, and the school was actually built on the site of an ex-slave plantation. He got given the property, and he developed the school, and he started teaching. Now, there's a, there's a moment where he met one of the local women for the first time, and it's a story from his biography that I just want to read you very briefly. One day, Booker was passing the home of Mrs Varna, from whom the ex-slave plantation had been given, but who did not know him by sight. She called out to him to chop some wood for her. Pulling off his coat and grasping an axe, he swiftly split a pile of wood and carried it into the kitchen. That was Professor Washington, said the startled coloured maid to her mistress. (laughs) Mrs Varna, in distress, called at his office and apologised. That is all right, madam, replied the smiling young principal. I like work and enjoy doing favours for my friends. Mrs Varna, captivated by his attitude, influenced many rich southern whites to give large sums to Tuskegee Institute. Now, isn't that remarkable? So you are the principal of this locally established school and you're walking down there and some woman goes, hey, come and chop my wood. You have every reason to stand on your rights, don't you? To dance up and down. You have mistaken me. You don't understand who I am. Do you realise who I am? And he goes, well, oh, she's the woman who gave us the plantation. I'll go and chop a wood. And when she finds out what's happened, she, you read the, read the story, she was captivated by his attitude there is something deeply captivating about humility brothers and sisters and actually how much more should we stand in awe of the Lord Jesus even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for me. why would God give up his only son for us And why would Jesus choose to die so that you and I can be forgiven? You came here today to think about ministry. And I want to suggest to you that as you think about ministry, the essence of that conversation must begin with the question, what does it mean for me to be like Christ and to humble myself in the service of others who desperately need to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Because there's lots of reasons for doing ministry, right? It's attractive. I mean, not if you step outside and speak to too many people on the campus, but as long as you stay within sort of your kind of Christian world, it's a very revered position to have. <coughs> You've kind of made it Christianly when you get to the point of doing an apprenticeship or going off to Bible college or becoming one of those minister people. Why do you want to think about ministry? because of your name because of the potential for greatness for the potential to be the person who stands up the front to be the person that everybody says oh aren't they fantastic Jesus says I think here at the heart of ministry is a humble desire to see the good of the other person such that you would give up everything you have for their sake so here's the second question Are you wrestling with a heart of humility? Are you asking God to persuade you to humbly serve the people who are around about you, irrespective of what anybody thinks about your ministry and how grand it is? Because, do you notice, actually, that's what Paul is calling on people to do in this passage. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you have that mind? Are you looking for the opportunity to talk to the person who doesn't fit in? Do you roll up at church and want to hang out with your friends or are you content to actually go and find the newcomer to quietly talk to the person that nobody else wants to talk to, to see the opportunity to bring Christ to someone and to invite them to know Jesus? Because, friends, can I be really, really honest with you? Ministry is a lot of hard work and most people are not famous uh, and actually most of us are just very ordinary If you really want to have your heart challenged and encouraged at the same time, can I commend this book to you? Uh, It's called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. It's Don Carson's writings about his dad. (coughs) Uh, And it is a beautiful book. But I just want to read to you one paragraph from the opening section which says this Most of us serve in modest patches. Most pastors will not regularly preach to thousands, let alone tens of thousands they will not write influential books, they will not supervise large staffs, and they will never see more than modest growth. They will plug away at their care for the aged, at visitation, at their counselling, at their Bible studies and preaching. Some will work with so little support that they prepare their own outlines. They cannot possibly discern, listen to this, they cannot possibly discern whether the constraints of their own sphere of service owe more to the challenges of the local situation or their own shortcomings. Once in a while, they will cast a wistful eye on successful ministries. Many of them will attend the conferences sponsored by the revered masters and come away with a slightly discordant combination of, on the one hand, gratitude and encouragement and, on the other, jealousy, feelings of inadequacy and guilt. Most of us, let us be frank, are ordinary pastors. Are you content to be an ordinary pastor? Are you content to go wherever it is that God sets you in your little corner of the world to preach Christ prayerfully and to ask God to change the hearts of whoever is given to you so that you might see them know Jesus and stand firm so that they meet him as their king on the last day? Because most of ministry is actually very, very lacking in glamour, if I'm going to be honest with you. And a lot of it is never seen by anyone. And friends, even the great Don Carson, I don't know whether you've ever known this about him, he started off doing ministry in French-speaking Canada in a time when there was a lot of resistance to the gospel. And in one little just throwaway sentence in the book, he says this. In 1969, when I started working with Bill Phillips to plan a church in part of Montreal, I visited 3,000 homes before I got my first Bible study going. He knocked on the door of 3,000 homes to find enough people to gather together. to study. The great Don Carson, the one who gets called to Australia to speak at the conferences, And writes the books that everybody reads. Knocked on the doors of 3,000 homes to persuade (coughs) enough people to gather together to read the Bible. There is a deep humility about that. And friends, that's the nature of ministry. You knock on people's doors and you invite them to know Jesus and lots of the time they're not interested. And so you go to the next one. If you've understood that the whole of creation exists for the praise of Jesus and if you've understood that in humility Christ gave himself up on the cross so that everyone might have the opportunity of life and you've understood that in the gospel therefore you have been called to a life of humble service then you are beginning to get into the space, I think where you can ask questions about should I do this ministry thing? But the question still remains... Does the fact that I've gotten all those things mean that I should be the person who ends up doing the vocational, running the church, doing whatever it is in ministry, running the women's Bible studies, making stuff happen, all that kind of stuff, ministry? And so I want to flip to 1 Timothy 3 just very briefly as we finish. And I want to pick up two key things really there in 1 Timothy 3 that take this question further. So if I understand that Jesus is the Lord, if I understand that the world needs the gospel, and if I understand that humble service is the way, what else do I need to think about as I investigate that question for myself? First thing I want to say is, and this will seem kind of counterintuitive on the basis of everything else we've said, but chapter 3 and verse 1 of 1 Timothy, the (coughs) saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There is actually something very precious about becoming the overseer or the elder. I think the words are interchangeable (coughs) in the New Testament. I think they're a word that describes somebody who has responsibility for teaching uh, and rebuking and pastoring a congregation of God's people. Uh, And what Paul's saying here is that it actually is a noble task. It's a vital task. It is a crucial task that you must think about because it holds a special place in the life of God's people. Now I'm saying that deliberately and it is currently in our Christian world very offensive to say such a thing because we have been trained to say that because of the gospel and the priesthood of all believers everybody's equal and we all do exactly the same thing. And we have confused some things that need not be confused and must not be confused. Everybody in the sight of God is equal. Nobody is more or less godly. The only way that you can be acceptable is by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But because of the way that God works in the world, the ministry of God's word, God has said, is vital to the way that his plan will unfold. So 2 Timothy 3, the word of God is able to perfectly equip the man of God for every good work. It's the scriptures that will shape people's lives. Ephesians 4, the word gives apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor and teacher are given to equip all of the saints for works of service so that the church may be built up there are particular roles that have been given for the ministry of the word so that the whole of God's church might act for the sake of ministry. And in 1 Corinthians 14, it is precisely because of the fact that we would love people and long for them to grow in Christ, that we would choose prophecy over tongues to be able to speak a word that will build your brothers and sisters up is actually fundamental to the way that God transforms and reshapes and moulds the hearts and lives of people. And what this means is that at the same time as we believe in the priesthood of all believers, and we must be absolutely and adamantly clear that nobody is more valuable than anybody else, the ministry of the word of God is a task that must be seen to and be seen as precious by the church. And I want to show you this particularly by pointing you to the reformers. So there's going to be a couple of quotes appear on the screen here. This is Luther describing the public ministry of the word. The public ministry of the Word, I hold, by which the mysteries of God are made known, ought to be established by holy ordination as the highest and greatest of the functions of the Church, on which the whole power of the Church depends, since the Church is nothing without the Word, and everything in it exists by virtue of the Word alone. Because the Word of God is the way that God will act to shape and mould people, Luther will say, This thing, holy ordination, and having people in this position of responsibility is vital. And it's not just Luther. Calvin says exactly the same thing. Listen to this. This is more outrageous, I think. I have accordingly pointed out above that God often commended the dignity of the ministry by all possible marks of approval in order that it might be held among us in the highest honor and esteem, even as the most excellent of all things. Now, that's an outrageous application of the priesthood of all believers, isn't it? The reformers who were adamantly committed to the priesthood of all believers were also adamantly committed to the fact that it is the ministry of the word of God that shapes and changes and moulds the life of God's people. And they held those two truths together without thinking that they kind of affected each other or stopped each other from being true. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to say to you that as you stop and consider full-time vocational word ministry, you are considering a noble task, a vital task, a task that it is actually worth giving up other things for, a thing for which you would stop doing whatever the degree is or whatever other thing that it is that is in your life. In fact, uh, in the Anglican Ordination Service, Anglican ministers promise to give up other study for the sake of studying the Word of God because of the significance of their position in terms of protecting and caring for the flock by the teaching of God's Word. We have somehow got to help each other to hold on to the absolute importance of the ministry of the Word and at the same time hold adamantly to the fact that none of us are better than anybody else and what we all need is the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to say to you, you should stop and think about how you will use the rest of your life for the sake of the ministration of God's word. That matters. It matters to God and it matters for the progress of the gospel and it matters because everybody's going to stand before Jesus. So one last thing as we finish. Who then is the kind of person who is fit for that responsibility? Well, verse 2 to 7. I'm just going to read this and let you reflect. Above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may be puffed up and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The person who is fit for this task is someone whose life is being shaped and moulded by the truth of the word. And brothers and sisters, the fundamental thing that you have that fits you for ministry is your character. The nature of who God is making you in Christ. And I want to say to you, that actually means stopping and talking to the people closest to you who know what you're really like. Um, You can hold it together in public. Um, You can kind of keep the ugly bits out of people's sight when you kind of meet with them for one hour a week. Um, But if you want to know if someone has an anger problem, go and talk to their spouse and children. Because that's where you see it. If you want to know someone who wrestles with kind of jealousy or consumerism or whatever, talk to their flatmates. Talk to the people who have to do the ins and outs of life with you. What would not just you say about yourself, but what would the people who are closest to you, what are the the people who live with you, what would they say about your strengths and weaknesses? What would they say about your godliness? What would they say to you about the spaces in your character are the ones that you really need to cry out and ask for God's help to work on, that the word and the spirit might mould and chip away so that you might be reshaped as someone who will love people well with the gospel. So how are you going with self-control or with your anger? Do you spend lots of time caught up doing menial tasks that are not very important? Do you avoid difficult but important things? Do you struggle with pornography? I really want to say to you that if you're thinking about this ministry thing, Will you please use today as an opportunity, if there are deep things about your character that God needs to reform, please don't hide them. Please talk to somebody that you trust today and say, look, there are some of these things that I am wrestling with and I need your prayer and encouragement and support to keep wrestling with them. Because I want to love people with the gospel of Jesus and I want to serve God's church and I want to evangelise the world. And so I want to be somebody who's being changed by the very gospel that I preach. But I want to finish with a warning. Verse 6. Did you notice it there? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. I don't know whether you've thought about this or not, But actually stopping to think about this noble task I think is a very dangerous thing to do. Because as you stop to think about the noble task which is revered by the Christian community around about you, it is possible to do that for all of the wrong reasons. And his deep warning here is do not fall into conceit and become puffed up and fall into the trap of the devil. If you're here today to please somebody, that's a rubbish reason to be here. If you're here today because you would like to be well thought of by the people around about you, that's a pretty rubbish reason to be here. Okay. Um, you walk into this space and there is actually a great danger to the sinful human heart in wanting to take on responsibility uh, Leadership amongst God's people and I want to say to you whatever else you do will you pray and be honest with yourself and with the people who love and speak to you and will you especially realise that this decision that you're making about vocational ministry it's not just yours alone to make you must make it in community with people around you who know and love and trust you in your life ask your pastor what he thinks of you Um, Ask the people around about you what they think of you, what they notice. Ask your flatmates what they have seen in you. If you're going to take on this task, this noble task of proclaiming the gospel that the world needs to hear in a position of particular leadership where you are set aside and paid by the church of God for that responsibility, you must begin with your heart before Christ. And so will you please be honest and real? There'll be opportunities and interviews today There'll be opportunities as you walk away. This is a process. But pray for God to work in you to take seriously the things that really matter to him. Pray that he will give you a heart for Jesus and for the gospel. Pray that he will give you a heart for the world. And pray that he will work on you so that you might actually grow as somebody who is able to love and lead God's people in a way that the scriptures call us to. I'm going to pray that God will do that on my today. So please pray with me. Um, precious father thank you for our Lord Jesus thank you that though he was equal with you he did not think that that was something to be grasped but made himself nothing father thanks for his service thanks for his obedience thanks for his death on the cross And Father, thank you that you have raised him up above all the names of the earth so that one day he will return and we will meet him and praise him and bring honour and glory to him and the whole of creation will be transformed into the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, as people living in that world, we pray that you would shape and mould our hearts by that truth. Help us, Father, to rejoice in the preaching of the gospel. Help us, Father, to long for the teaching of your word that would change people's lives. And, Father, as we consider the question whether we are to be people who stand in that position, we pray that you would work in us deeply by your spirit. Father, show us our sinfulness. Grow us in humility. Help us to be willing to tackle the things that are uncomfortable and icky. And Father, please would you help us to be shaped and moulded as followers of Christ, that we might be faithful servants and leaders of others. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.